Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 476th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is John Dorshuk, Iowa State Archaeologist and Director of the State Archaeologist and Adjunct Associate Professor at Anthropology at the University of Iowa, who is going to talk to us about the ancient people of Iowa. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. To open our show, we'd like to welcome back John. How are you doing? I am doing well today. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for being on our show. And we call this first segment Farouk Danarin. And our goal is to give our listeners a little background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on the history of human settlement in Iowa? Uh, Yeah, first, I I think the first thing we need to establish is a timeline. And uh, uh, we have good evidence based on uh, direct excavation of archaeological materials in Iowa, along with comparative information from surrounding states and the mid-continent, that human beings have been in Iowa for approximately 13,000 years. So we have a we have a quite a bit of time depth here, and uh, thousands of years is a hard thing to, for most people to wrap their heads around, given that you know our own society has only been in place a couple hundred years. But uh, it's important to recognize that there's been continuity of human occupation through those 13,000 years, uh, as best we can tell from the archaeological record. So pretty much at any point in time since then, uh, there have been human groups, and the vast majority of these are uh, indigenous peoples, that is, uh, the ancestors of modern Native American peoples. Okay, so when you're talking about 13,000 years ago, weren't there areas of the state, I mean, the Pleistocene Ice Age has still got some scars or remains around. I mean, I know it was retracting, but what areas in Iowa did they tend to settle uh, or we would consider settling the soonest? Right. So what we're really talking about is what portion of the landscape could be occupied by humans successfully. Yes. Uh, there's a great big chunk um, in the in the uh, the north central part of the state that was still under ice at 13,000. So if you imagine a uh, a big tongue of ice coming out of Minnesota, basically pointed right at Des Moines, um, that uh, that tongue of ice was uh, in place even probably as late as 10 or 11,000 years ago. Uh, it started to retreat, and uh, the last ice probably was out of Iowa in the very northern central portions by about 9,000. So, so that north central portion is the youngest part of the Iowa landscape, and uh, the very earliest um, Native American ancestors couldn't have occupied that area until the ice was gone. But around that, uh, interestingly enough, even in northwest Iowa and northeast Iowa, those areas didn't have ice at 13,000, and nor did the whole southern half of Iowa. So the southern half of Iowa and the two sides were, uh, were would have been accessible to those first human beings who were who were entering into this area. Okay, well then a question then is because if I recall when the when the glaciers retracted that tongue of ice that you're talking about, so it strips it down to the bedrock and then lichen and moss usually come in to help create soil. So um, I guess I'm asking is that, of course, you have, you're just saying native life kind of around this tongue. Um, are there any kind of records to show how quickly they might have moved into the area that was one time under ice? Well, um 
that's something that could be researched, but uh, the majority of the sites that have been recorded that we have dates for uh, in the area that's called the Des Moines Lobe, that tongue of ice that we've been talking about, are are younger than 9,000 uh, and, and often by quite a bit, so even five, 6,000. So, so it did take a while for that area to become particularly attractive for the hunting gathering type adaptations that people followed at that time uh, because you did need to have that progression of vegetation come in and then the animal populations following that and then it would have become attractive to humans so so uh, that's not a part of the state where we focus a lot of attention when we're looking for these earliest remnants of, of human occupation but very rich in later time periods okay so then to ask this question because you've got the tongue uh, of course, rivers form from this. Um, right. So if you're looking for the hunters and gatherers, um, is the Missouri and Mississippi, they're not exactly full-fledged yet, are they? Or, or what bodies of water were there that could help uh, ensure life? Yeah, the Mississippi was uh, in parts um, in place, but there were substantial portions that were affected by the the melt farther to the north, particularly coming out of the Lake Michigan Basin. And uh, so it was still settling into its modern route that we know today. Uh, And there were a couple of very, very large um, uh, loops that were cut off and uh, and reformed. Uh, so, So that was coming into place. The Missouri was a little more settled. Uh, but even there, you know, uh, uh, west of the Lus Hills area, uh, there's there's movement of that river course back and forth. Uh, the interior rivers, of course, uh, many of them drain from the north central part of the state, you know, to the southeast, uh, or else over to the to the southwest corner. So so that uh, that Des Moines lobe did play a large role in shaping today's Iowa, based on where all that all that meltwater went. Okay, let's go back to the the oldest settlers which is kind of what we're focusing on um what were some of the distinct similarities and maybe differences i mean i know you have hunters and gatherers are moving from place to place following herds trying to find the best um are there some groups in the parts that you said that were livable in the state that created different artwork or had different qualities or characteristics that uh, researchers have been able to find and maybe some similarities as well yeah, I think the uh, the really striking thing about these uh, earliest folks that archaeologists use the term Paleo Indian, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use that. Uh, so Paleo Indian folks had a remarkably uniform cultural adaptation across much of the U.S. Uh, in these non-glaciated parts of the, of the country uh, at the end of the Pleistocene uh, time period before the beginning of the Holocene. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's probably because there weren't that many of them. Uh, they were spread out. Uh, they had all the room in the world. I mean, imagine a landscape where if you wanted to go over the next hill, you could be pretty darn sure you weren't going to see anybody over there. You know, that's just something we can't experience in, in today's world. There are so many people everywhere, even in sparsely populated parts of the world. But, in, you know, in Iowa, there's there's somebody on every square mile. So everything's occupied. But at that time, it would have been fantastic. You know, you could have just uh, roamed the, the uh, countryside. Uh, it was probably hard work to find other people. And uh, these people moved around a lot in part probably, we think, to make connections with other small groups because to have a viable biological population, one that could reproduce, find mates and, and reproduce successfully, you got you to have that contact. So, so these small family groups, 
the uh, that represents Paleo Indian Lifeways were highly mobile in order to take advantage of the fact that they had all the landscape in the world to play in, but also to find those other groups to trade with, to exchange mates with, uh, uh, ensure the success of, of reproduction for the for the group, um, and uh, and probably to trade information. You know, where where were they successful? What did they know about the landscape? You know, it was very much an exploratory stage, I think, in human existence. So uh, so being mobile was an important part of that lifeway. Um, one thing that we see archaeologically that allows us to track that is the use of uh, the stone raw material that they preferred for making uh, their uh, spear points. And um, the kind of material that was used is called chert, C-H-E-R-T, which uh, in Europe is known as flint, uh, but uh, in the U.S. geologists call it chert. And there are high quality chert. Can we, uh, we could, this is the oh, end yeah, of the segment, yeah. can we talk sincerely, uh, want to hear more about the chert um, yeah, can yeah, we talk yeah, about yeah, in the we, next segment? We have a lot more absolutely. to talk about, so please stay tuned for our next segment of our show. This is ROI on KELA St. Ambrose University 106.1. If you are wondering how to find out where locals love to go, there's a website called localsloveus.com. Or you can pick up a Locals Love Us guide around town as well. Localsloveus.com. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the second segment of the show, which is referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Mr. John Dorshuk, Iowa State Archaeologist and Director of the State Archaeologist adjunct associate professor of anthropology at the University of Iowa. And we are going to be talking about the ancient people of Iowa. Our history bus for today's show are Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. So, Rick, can you talk about Spears? I will. I will talk about Church here in a second. But uh, before I do that, what is the earliest confirmed age of a settled site that you and your folks have been able to find in Iowa? Yeah, we have uh, we don't have direct radiocarbon data from this location, but um, by comparison of the uh, the stone tools that have been recovered, it matches what's been found elsewhere where they have been directly dated, and they come out at about twelve thousand, twelve thousand five hundred years ago. Where at? Where where was this settlement at? Uh, that's in Cedar County, uh, just um, a little bit um, west of the Cedar River, uh, near Cedar Valley. Okay, so a question then, how long has the Cedar River been around since you're talking about that? Well, you know, I'm not sure of the, the progression geologically, but um, it must have been substantially in place at the time this site was uh, occupied. This site's up in the uplands above the river, but is only a mile or so from the, the river trench itself. So uh, I'm guessing that one of the reasons that folks located themselves where was that that river course was, uh, was pretty much in place. Jay. All right. So I will take you back to your stone tools. <laughs> yes. Sure. Yes. I will happily do that. And and my question is is sort of twofold. Um, number one, I'm I'm really interested in if you can talk a little bit about the process of 
of developing stone tools and then what kinds of stone tools were available to these folks. And then if I can sneak one other in, um, because you talk about this being uh, very uniform uh, across the, the um, you know, maybe North America, is it even uniform going back into um, Asia? Are we seeing a, con- a continuation of a, of a culture migrating um, from Asia into North America? Is there some evidence of that? Yeah, uh, yeah, those are all great questions. Um, so uh, the point I was uh, making in the in the first segment that I didn't get quite to finish was uh, one of the ways that we can track the movement of Paleo-Indian groups across the landscape is them picking up and then leaving behind uh, distinctive, high-quality uh, cherts. And uh, there's lots of varieties of chert. It's a silica silica-based material, but color differences, texture differences, sometimes fossil inclusions, leave literally fingerprints that uh, rock specialists can say, yeah, that's that's probably from this quarry area. This is from a different location. So um, the penchant that Paleo-Indian peoples had for using the best of the best chert uh, was great for archaeologists because it allows us to oftentimes track them uh, in ways that later populations um, didn't move around as much. They were less selective about what material they use for their tools, a little more um, uh, pragmatic, uh, so it doesn't work quite as well. But for Paleo-Indians, it works pretty neat. And and that shows that they were willing to go long distances. Uh, So we're talking probably hundreds of miles over the course of a year uh, in their journeying through the landscape, uh, in part, again, to meet other people, to um, to uh, get the highest quality chert that they could that they could find and uh, trade and and do those kinds of things. Uh, So your other question had to do with um, uh, similarities of of type. So uh, one of the early discoveries in North American archaeology was of a point type called Clovis. And uh, Clovis is named for Clovis, New Mexico, which is uh, the type site for this particular point. But what was really cool was this Clovis point, which has very distinctive features, uh, was then found not only in the southwest, but in the southeast and in the northeast and in places like Iowa. Um, We have records of several hundred Clovis type points um, that that conform to that that type um, uh, from Iowa, almost entirely from surface context. And we only have this one archaeological site I mentioned over in Cedar County, where we have found them in sealed, buried context. So so that's a pretty special place. And that's why I'm still working there. Actually, uh, um, I was out there today with my Cornell College Field School. So uh, a very important point. But that that's that that uniformity of type um, is a hallmark of Paleo-Indian. What's interesting is you don't see that, though, in the old world. It didn't come over here. It was invented after people got to North America. Rick? Yeah, I was thinking about something you said in the introduction about uh, wandering for days without contact of another human being, uh, yet they moved around to trade for chert. what did the early Paleo-Indians do day by day? Was it strictly a struggle for survival? Uh, do we have any cultural artifacts that indicate that they played games or fought mm-hmm. wars? What What did they do day to day? 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I would. I, I doubt there was a lot of conflict. There might have been some, but uh, we're not talking about large enough groups to really have war in the sense that uh, uh, larger communities do. But uh, there might have been some interpersonal conflict. But but I think uh, I think most of the time, I, I imagine a world where people were probably pretty happy to see another group and uh, you know share some stories and exchange uh, whatever whatever they had to trade and, and those kinds of things. Um, day to day, it would have been very much a hunter gatherer existence, which is you need to find enough food. Um, these folks probably weren't storing uh, food. They weren't, uh, uh, they weren't doing any kind of agriculture or domestication, so they weren't piling up a, a big harvested resource that they would come back to. Um, it's possible that they processed nuts or collected wild seeds and, and did create caches that they might uh, they might use over the course of the year. But um, but I suspect they were on the move. So um, we th- across the mid continent where we do find. Of what we think are encampments of Paleo Indian people, it looks like they were small groups for short periods of time. So um, I don't think that it was necessarily a particularly harsh existence uh, because I suspect they knew how to make a living pretty well in those environments, but I think it required that they move fairly frequently. And uh, that so it was probably one of a, a lifestyle of of uh, moving around relatively frequently and uh, uh, otherwise enjoying the bounty of the landscape. Okay, so um, I guess because as we're talking about it, this being so incredibly migratory, uh, and I said you've said that they're not one for pretty much any level of agriculture or storing food. No, um, were there signs because migratory? Did they have? what you would possibly say as best could be kind of establish uh, uh, tracks in which when the weather was getting crummy, they head down to a certain place and then come back or are there signs that how they could cope with winter or what exactly were they doing in the harsh, more extreme times of our Iowa year? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a really interesting problem that, that, people who focus on this Clovis period are, are very interested in is that landscape usage and, and whether that movement is tied to things like uh, seasonal weather conditions. Um, in Iowa, we don't have enough uh, of these uh, in situ um, uh, well-preserved campsites to really develop much of a model. But one of the interesting things about the site in Cedar County that I've been working at is that most of the church uh, for the points that have been found left on the site uh, were from uh, quarries in southeast Iowa. So, uh, you know, uh, several hours um, south and east down into like Keokuk and, and uh, Burlington area, that kind of thing. So one of the speculations is that maybe in the better times of year weather-wise, they would push up into the Cedar River, what became the Iowa River, you know, some of the, the Des Moines River, and exploit uh, uh, what they could of the of the Iowa landscape south of that ice sheet that we were talking about before. Uh, but then maybe they would back down into uh, southeast Iowa and, 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 and northern Missouri when the weather got harsher, because uh, just like now, you know, going a few hours south makes a big difference, and and life is a little bit easier. So that's a speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised. And the and the raw material sort of suggests that in terms of where it originated. Okay, Jay. 
Well, since you're working on a site, I'm always fascinated by the process of archaeology and, and how that works. Can you kind of describe um, the site and what you've been doing, how you've sort of done your archaeological work, you know, whether you've gridded things out or whatever, and, and the kinds of things that you've been finding and what makes you really excited? Yeah, this is this the uh, fifth time I've taught an archaeological field school at this particular site, and I keep going back to it because it is the only place where we've ever found buried Clovis, so there's there's that potential for more of that, which I want to I want to uh, experience myself, let alone let the students experience that. Uh, but it's an ideal training uh, location because it literally is one of the most nondescript locations you can imagine in Iowa. Uh, for something that special. I mean, it, it, it looks like any other farm field in Iowa, uh, but it happens to be a place where 12,000 years ago there was a camp of people. So it's, it's kind of fascinating in that regards. Um, so this is a, it's currently used as a hay field. It's a relatively high ground, high level ground. Um, so we were able to um, take a couple of steps in, in uh, investigating the area. Uh, we first went through with a series of sampling devices that are uh, that are literally a bucket auger, the kind of thing you dig a, a hole for a post if you were building a fence. And uh, we did a systematic grid of those at 50-foot intervals. Um, the North American archaeologists used the metric system, so it was 15 meters, but um, approximately 50 feet. Uh, so we did a whole grid of those just looking for artifacts. So it was a presence-absence test, basically. And based on where we found artifact concentrations, then uh, we invested some time in larger-scale excavation units, and we were digging um, one meter by two meters, so about three foot by six foot, roughly, uh, excavation units. And uh, we're digging in controlled levels, so we only dig um, 10 centimeters. Four, four inches at a time, and uh, that constitutes a level. And we do that to separate stratigraphically materials that are closer to the surface from those that are deeper down, and that gives us some vertical control in addition to the horizontal control that that we have. So, because um, we're very we're very keen on context, we really want to be able to document exactly where different kinds of materials come from. Uh, so this is the fifth season that we've been out there. We've uh, the Cornell Field School is on a every other year pattern, um, so every uh, every September we've been out uh, even years the last uh, the last ten years or so, and uh, I have students for uh, three and a half weeks, so we end up digging um, on the order of um, seven or eight of these one by two meter units, and we go down about um, a foot foot and a half. Uh, so somewhere between 35 and 50 centimeters down into the ground surface before we hit sterile soils. There's nothing nothing ever been found deeper than that. But all the materials that we excavate go through quarter-inch mesh screens uh, because one of the things we're looking for is the chipping debris for making these tools, and that can be very small. So we're looking for very small-scale pieces of chert that represent the stone tool making. Uh, Rick, being that you know a thing or two about rocks, you got the next question. <laughs> and I do love chert. <laughs> I do have chert in my collection. Yeah. <laughs> a question, John: Where did, where did the ancient Iowans come from? Where did they migrate yeah. <laughs> from? Omaha. That is, that is, yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's one of those Kansas fundamental City. questions in North, North American archaeology. And the uh, the amount of ink that's been spilled on that over the last century is, you know, to fill swimming pools. But um, uh, generally speaking, most, most archaeologists agree that uh, all the evidence points to uh, uh, a uh, 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 northeast uh, 
Asian origin point, so somewhere across the Bering Land Bridge uh, would be uh, most sensible. Uh, there's a lot of genetic information anymore that, that seems to point in, in that direction as well. Some linguistic that's not as, as reliable or strong, but um, I think there were probably a variety uh, or a, a, a number of different uh, pulses of movement out of the Asian continent into North America at different points in time. Um, you know, there's some very recent data from the Southwest that uh, uh, footprints being uh, preserved. I don't know if you guys have, have heard about that. Yes. Uh, but they've been dated, and I haven't seen the, the published reports yet. I've just seen, you know, the news or social media kind of reports. But the chatter among archaeologists is that this looks pretty good, that it could be 16,000 years old. Um, that would be some of the oldest documented human presence in the North American continent. And if that's coming out of the Southwest, my guess is that there's probably a coastal route that's being followed at that time, um, skirting the glacier, glacial land masses that would have locked up uh, any land routes. But folks in boats could have made it down around the, uh, the ice and then got onto the non-glaciated part of the North American continent, penetrated into, uh, into the southwest, and then from there probably moved up into uh, places like Iowa and then farther south and east. Jay. Um, so I'm curious because we are talking about ancient peoples, and so can you give us a little bit of a timeline of – how things progress in Iowa, you know, um, do we yeah. have a, a yeah. change in, does Clovis, um, manufacture, uh, you know, disappear? Is it replaced by something else? Can you kind of walk us through at least a few thousand years worth of, uh, Iowa prehistory? Yeah. Yeah. We should pick up that timeline thread that we introduced. So, so, um, Clovis is pretty short lived, uh, 500 years, 800 years. And for whatever reason, the type point that we know of as Clovis, uh, starts to evolve, uh, and it changes a little bit. And there's a series of point types that archaeologists have identified that are, uh, that are descendants of Clovis, if you want to do it that way. But by about the time the, the, uh, you get to the very end of the Pleistocene and the beginning of the Holocene time period, about 10,000 years ago, geologically speaking, uh, the climate was changing pretty dramatically, and the old lifeways were falling away as as, uh, as either not needed or not well-suited. We're not quite sure which, but uh, it looks like a real diversification started to happen, uh, probably to take advantage of the more modern climate and the broader range of plants and animals that were available, and the fact that population densities probably were starting to, to increase. So very, very slow, but we see all through this 13,000 years that I'm talking about of a constant net that there's more and more and more people on the landscape you know, right up to the point where Europeans come and, uh, and join the fray. So, so um, all the Native American cultures that were here had to deal with a the constant theme of, geez, there's more people around, you know, is there enough to eat? Is there enough clean water? Is there enough places to camp? And at some point, they probably would have started to feel a little bit of pressure in certain areas, those, you know, really prime places that everybody would have gravitated to, some of the nice river valleys, places like that across the mid-continent, appear to have had higher population density sooner than, say, some of the upland areas away from water, you know, that kind of thing, even as we see the pattern today. So, um, so that, that increase in population would have, would have carried through all of what archaeologists call the archaic period, which starts about 
uh, 10,000 years ago and lasts up to about 3,000 years ago. And there's a lot of variation within that that, that that you can see a lot of nuance in. But generally speaking, the thing that characterizes the archaic is that it's all hunting-gathering. There's still no agriculture anywhere uh, across the mid-continent and, and during the archaic period. But there's a lot of diversification in terms of the stone tool technology, the number of point types, the range of tools that were made to do many more different functions. It was a lot more woodworking, boneworking, um, basket waking probably started. Unfortunately, the Iowa climate is such that we don't get preserved basket material like they do in the caves in the Southwest. So we're not sure, but it appears that that probably was the case. So, so technology diversified. I'm sure social organization got more complex. We see evidence through the archaic of larger groups of people staying together longer periods of time. So social interactions were getting more complicated. And that all came to a head about 3,000 years ago or so. And we, when we see the advent of a new technology appearing in Iowa, and that's pottery. And pottery technology is associated with what archaeologists call the woodland time period, starting about 3,000 years ago. And the woodland lasts up to about 1,000 years ago. Uh, but this was a time period when uh, people were starting to really settle down and um, not only make pots, but they were also starting to experiment with domestication of uh, plants. And uh, that first involved uh, some local um, um, plant types, um, and then later was diversified to include uh, plants like corn, which is a, uh, something that came up from Mexico into the south and then eventually made it up to Iowa. So uh, there's, a, there's a suite of, of local plants that were domesticated first and then, and then corn by about a thousand years ago. Corn was domesticated and that kicked off a whole nother uh, uh, sort of revolutionary cycle in Iowa archaeology where we see large organized villages being established that were occupied year after year after year uh, based on a corn diet and um, and local hunting so so that um, that's a broad sweep of uh, Iowa uh, prehistory there for okay you. we have literally two minutes left for this segment and it's customary okay. to give our guests the last word John ah. why do you think knowing about the ancient peoples of Iowa is relevant in today's world uh, I think that that's a really good question. It's one that I always pose my students in my introduction to archaeology classes is why do we care about this stuff? And uh, they're usually pretty good at coming up with a lot of uh, a lot of good ideas. But uh, the first and foremost, I think it's about identity. Uh, I can't think of any politician. I can't think of, uh, of literally any person who, if you ask, you know, they always want to know where are you from? What's your life experience been? Who are your people? You know, these are questions that are fundamental to being human. And uh, we ask them of ourselves all the time. We use them in our identities. And uh, archaeologists are part and parcel of that discipline that helps to establish those for the human race. So I think that's probably uh, fundamentally the most important thing is that we're curious about ourselves and our past. And uh, the quotes attributed to various people, but... Uh, uh, you know, there's the, uh, you know, you, you, uh, uh, you can't really have a future without knowing your past. So okay. um, I think that's the fundamental reason. Okay. When we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI okay. on station KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 476th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. We would like to thank our noted guest, John Dorshuk, Iowa State Archaeologist and Director of the State Archaeologist and Adjunct Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Iowa, who has talked with us about the ancient people of Iowa. The history bus for today's show are Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <laughs>